Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Romans chapter 4, verses 24 and 25. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. This is the word of God. God will also count us righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, thank you for this opportunity to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray your word would be made clear to all of us today and that you might open our eyes to see the beauty of this good news that was accomplished 2,000 years ago for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. A few years ago, historian Wilfred McClay wrote a provoking article in a publication put out by the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture. And the title of his article was The Strange Persistence of Guilt. And he explained that the predictions of philosophers in previous centuries have not come to pass. People like Friedrich Nietzsche were confident that with the removal of God from our thinking and our culture would also result in the removal of guilt. Without the idea of God oppressing us with irrational fear, he thought, we would be free from the constraints of guilt. But that hasn't happened. The committed atheist and psychoanalyst Sigmund Freud later lamented that a sense of guilt was responsible for our loss of happiness. And that guilt, he said, was the most common, was the most important problem in civilization. But instead of understanding the moral realities behind guilt, Freud tried to eliminate any kind of moral judgment at all by explaining it away as psychological phenomenon. We can see his sweeping influence today, can't we, with our very therapeutic culture. But nevertheless, guilt has remained. And McClay argued that the persistence of guilt is actually an understatement. Guilt is even more powerful and pervasive in our society than ever before. And one reason that we cannot escape the reality of guilt is that we cannot escape the reality of God and his moral justice and the reality of his perfect holiness and his good design for his creation, a design that has been severely marred by humanity. We cannot escape the reality of what the Bible calls our sin. These fundamental truths are the reason that Christians have celebrated this day in history for almost 2,000 years. Because the God-given solution to our guilt, the forgiveness of our sins, the restoration of a right relationship with our Creator comes through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without it, there is no hope for any civilization or culture, including our own. 
Here in America today, we can see firsthand, in a sense, what happens when a culture loses its grip on these fundamental truths. If we don't understand what to do with our guilt before God, if we haven't experienced forgiveness from God, then we won't know how to show forgiveness to one another. This is what we see in our culture today. If you do or say something wrong in the eyes of someone, you can be condemned. You are canceled with no chance of forgiveness. No opportunity for redemption. And it's been well documented that the younger generations today are increasingly concerned about this trend. Forgiveness, atonement, redemption, restoration are slowly becoming foreign concepts today. So what do we do about the root issue? What do we do with our guilt What's so important about God's forgiveness? I want to spend our brief time together considering three questions with you this morning. First, why do we need God's forgiveness? Second, how is God's forgiveness achieved? And then finally, how do we receive and experience God's forgiveness personally? So, first of all, why do we need it? As we see in this passage that was read for us, Jesus was handed over to die because of our sins. And he was raised to life to make us right with God. So without Jesus, because of our sins, we're not right with God. We do not have a right relationship with the one who created us. Or to use the word we see at the beginning, we're not righteous. Earlier in this letter, He tells us that no one is righteous, not even one. We're all separated from God because of our sin. This is the human condition. And that every one of us has sinned and fallen short of his glorious standard. And while we may feel guilty for some things, our sinful nature has so blinded us and corrupted us of our true condition is far more severe and serious than we even realize. So whether we feel guilty or not, the truth is is that we are guilty. And this is a very unpopular notion today, isn't it? We live in a culture of self-esteem and participation trophies and automatic affirmation. You be you, right? Disney movies that tell you that nothing could be wrong with you You just need to be true to yourself, to follow your heart, to follow your desires. That's a dangerous lie. That's why we need God's word to tell us the truth about ourselves. And he tells us in his word, unmistakably, that your heart, my heart, without God's intervention, is desperately wicked. It cannot be trusted. He tells us that listening to your own desires and doing what makes you feel good is not the path to life and flourishing. It is the path to destruction. The truth is that most people in prison today followed their own desires and listened to their heart. They did what made them feel good. But we tend to view ourselves better than those others, don't we? We tend to think God grades on a curve somehow. But that's not what he tells us 
in his word. He tells us that he's absolutely perfect and holy. And every one of us on our own falls short of his standard. But let's face it. Even if we use our own standard, we would fall short. Francis Schaeffer suggested we imagine we have a tape recorder around our neck, or today we might say we have our iPhone audio recorder on our whole lives. And every time we made a judgment or an expectation about someone else's behavior or wrongdoing, it would record that. And then at the end of our lives, we're just judged by our own recordings, our actions and thoughts judged only by how we've judged others. Even by that standard, we would fail. So to understand the significance of what we're here to remember today, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and what a gift it is for us, why this is good news or gospel, we must first understand our desperate need, our need for God's forgiveness. And this requires a radical admission of guilt. Tim Keller illustrates this by imagining an aging man whose hearing is failing, but is in denial about it. Most of us probably know or have experienced a loved one like this. He complains it's other people who are mumbling. And finally, his wife convinces him to get his hearing tested. And of course, the clear verdict is that he needs hearing aids. But when he sees the cost, he's shocked. He, said, he says to his wife, we can't afford that. But his wife tells him, hey, buy the best ones and consider it a gift from me. Okay, that sounds nice, but to accept that gift means to admit his weakness, right? It would mean to acknowledge other people aren't, in fact, mumbling. It is me who needs help. It would mean saying, thank you. I'm an aging man who can't hear what people are telling me, and I need hearing aids. You see, for some gifts, there's no way to receive them without first admitting your need. The good news about Jesus is an ultimate gift that requires radical admission of guilt. We need God's forgiveness. Second question, how is God's forgiveness achieved exactly? Let's be clear from the last point and the, the theme of all of Scripture, really. We cannot achieve it. Okay, there's nothing we can do about it. It must be achieved by God himself. And he achieved it through the one and only Jesus Christ. God the Son who took on human nature in this unique person. Jesus, again, was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. Listen, this is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. All other religions say, do this, do that. Christianity says, it's done. One scholar puts it this way, Christianity doesn't start with, here's how you have to live, but rather it starts with, here's what Jesus did for you in history. Jesus, the God-man, took on our sins to the cross as if he committed them 
as our substitute. He bore that penalty that we deserved so that our guilt for sins could be removed and we could be forgiven by God. The great 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon said it this way, I have always considered with Luther and Calvin that the sum and substance of the gospel, okay, the sum and substance of the good news about Jesus lies in that word substitution. Christ standing in the place of man. And that's exactly what he did. He stood in our place condemned and he was treated on the cross as if he had committed all of our sins. And God's word also tells us that sin doesn't just mean we're guilty before God. Sin means death. So Jesus died for our sin. Listen to another passage from scripture that explains this. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Closely connected, of course, to what Jesus did in his death is what we remember specifically today. That God raised him from the dead, demonstrating his great victory over sin and death. Showing that Jesus' substitution and the payment for our sin was in fact accepted by God. That's how forgiveness of sin is achieved. Now, what about this resurrection of his? I mean, isn't that doesn't that go against science and, and what we know about the natural order? Well, that's a great question. What is undisputed in history is that immediately after Jesus' death, there was a growing movement of Jewish people who began to worship a human being as the Son of God, something with no precedent whatsoever. If that and the events that followed like many of them dying for that claim, if that was not the result of Jesus' resurrection, then there has to be an alternative satisfying explanation for all of that. And, and, and it's just, it's not as easy as you might think to come up with one that makes sense, though many have tried. The second thing to consider is that nature and science are God's creation. God's not in nature, he's above it, right? So, when humanity started down the wrong path of rebellion against God resulting in death, that was not God's ultimate plan for humanity. His ultimate plan is a new creation with, with eternal life with him. So as one scholar says, the resurrection is not a suspension of the natural order, but the beginning of the restoration of the natural order, the world as God intended it to be. God tells us that Jesus in his resurrection is the first fruit of this new creation. All those who have had their sins forgiven in Christ will one day be given a body like the resurrected Jesus, a body fit for the new creation. Well, if that's how God's forgiveness is achieved, how do we receive that forgiveness? How do we experience that forgiveness personally? How, how are we, how am I, how are you made right with God? How are we personally counted as righteous? Look again at our passage, 
God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him. So what does this mean to believe in him? Well, first you need to believe these things are true. Okay, the reality of God's holiness and his future judgment, the, the reality of your sin, my sin, and our guilt before him, Okay, confessing that to him as something we know to be true. We must believe in the reality of his love, his, his radical love, in sending this Jesus, the, the Son of God, who lived a perfect life, a life I couldn't live, a life none of us could live, and died in our place to pay for all your sin. You must believe that. You must believe in his resurrection and his victory also on your behalf that you might be made right with God, that you might be counted as righteous, that you might not only be forgiven, but live eternally with him. This word believe in the Bible has connotations of faith, trust, and allegiance. You must believe he's Lord, not just with your mind, but with your heart and your will. You must put your trust in him, not trusting in yourself and your merits before God, your good works, but in his merits alone, his good works alone, his cross alone. And with all your allegiance, turning over the keys to your life to Jesus, turning your life to him, living for him. That's believing in him. Would you do that today? The full payment for all your sins is available to you. This is good news. The washing away of your guilt before God. That's why the resurrection is such good news and why Christians celebrate this day with great joy. If you've ever shopped at Costco or places like it, what do they do when you come to the exit with your cart, your shopping cart with things in your cart? They want to see your receipt, right? They, they want to see that all the things in your cart are paid in full. So they look over your receipt and swipe that marker, and you're free to go. Tim Keller says the resurrection is like a big receipt, in the resurrection, God's stamp paid in full across history and across your life if you believe in him. It's an assurance that the debt of sin has been paid. The guilt and stain have been removed. The marker swiped. Would you put all your sin in that cart today? Would you put all your sin on the cross of Christ? It doesn't matter what it is. He loves you. He knows it all. He knows you better than you know yourself. Confess it to him, all of it, and receive his forgiveness through the death of Jesus. And his resurrection will be yours, paid in full, stamped across your life and your glorious future with your Savior. Would you please stand for prayer? I want to tell you again, friend, Jesus loves you. He loves you so much, and he knows everything about you. He knows everything you've been through, the highs and deep lows. 
He knows everything you've thought, everything you've done, and he loves you so much that he died on a cross that your sins might be forgiven. And he rose from the dead that you might have eternal life in him. A right relationship finally restored with your creator God for eternity. This is such good news. It's such a gift. But it is only good news if you receive that gift. So would you receive him today? Would you trust in Christ for salvation? Father, thank you so much for the resurrection of Jesus. Thank you for his death. Thank you for his resurrection. Thank you for his ascension to be with you. And we long to be with you forever. I thank you for the full payment for our sins, the full cleansing of our guilt available in the cross, accomplished by Christ, not by us. Lord, I pray for each person here listening to this, if they are not part of your family, may you not let them rest today until they've put their full confidence and trust and faith in Jesus, until they've confessed their desperate need for you, their desperate need for your forgiveness, and that they would receive that through Christ in full allegiance, giving their lives to him. Please, Father, for Jesus' sake, amen.